All right, welcome to this episode of the podcast. I've got Sean Noriega, the fucking one and only here. And uh, we've already been having a good conversation. We, we're, we've been talking about baseball. We've been talking like 40 and 60 times. We've been talking getting burned by fat kids. <laughs> all, all the good stuff that, um, yeah. you know, has not been captured, unfortunately, on the recording. But, um, you know, it's a pleasure to be able to have you on here and to be able to chat. I'm looking forward to this one. We made it happen, too. You know, this is the yep. late night edition of yep. the podcast. So if you wouldn't mind, just like quick little intro, and then we'll just kind of roll and have some fun with this thing. Beautiful, man. Well, first of all, Pat, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, so my name is Sean Noriega. Um, I am a competitive powerlifter and powerlifting coach. I got into powerlifting specifically uh, in 2013, right around the time uh, I was going away to college. Uh, got really competitive with it, started coaching full time. And at this point, I currently have the uh, second best 83 kilo total in the world. Um, I coach a team personally of around 60 lifters. And then I have a five coach coaching staff that works alongside me. So it's been a, it's been a pretty wild experience and it's just been great to have like my own community within the powerlifting community. And, and my goal really going forward is to continue to build that and continue to build a roster of just, you know, my, I think a lot of the ways that people perceive my coaching is like, I'm trying to build the next generation of, you know, open champs. essentially. Yeah. And, you know, I, I kind of wanted to, I've got some, some specific questions on powerlifting for you. Cause I do find it to be a fascinating sport. And like, I I've never competed in powerlifting. I haven't really, I haven't really followed it that close to tell you the truth. I couldn't name that many dudes that, that really compete in it, but, um, you know, sort of seeing it from afar and having a strength background, competing in strongman and, you know, exercise science and all that. Like, I find it interesting because I feel like it's a sport that has evolved tremendously, mm -hmm. particularly in recent times, you know. And I guess like as an outside observer, the stuff that I see that makes it look so different is the positions that people get themselves into nowadays being like the extent of the arch is just crazy. And the, you know, the ability to get into sumo positions and for people, it seems like that's what's really pushing the numbers in powerlifting at this point in time, or kind of like the positional stuff that people are able to get into. Plus like the specificity of training, which I think is different from back in the day stuff. Um, and I also, I think like an appreciation of body composition at the top of the food chain, you know, yeah. but I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are. If you want to just sort of riff on. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So, so I actually, I, I kind of want to, uh, to disagree with you on a piece here. Cause I think it's going to be a really interesting thing to talk about. Yeah, for sure. That, which is that I, I actually, one of the things that you said is absolutely true in that a big thing that's changed is a lot of like the positional stuff and technique that is now considered, um, you know, powerlifting specific technique, which again, absolutely is true. You go on Instagram, you, you know, find a, a gym that's, you know, a powerlifting specific gym that's populated by a bunch of junior lifters, you know, 18 to 23 year olds. You're probably going to see a big chunk of them deadlifting sumo, trying to bench with as big of an arch as they can. But the second thing that you said that I disagree with is that 
you've said that those positions are what have driven up the numbers in the sport. Mm-hmm. I think what you'd be interested to know is that a vast majority of either the world records or champions in their weight class do not use extreme techniques. So up until the, I believe, 83 or 93 kilo weight class, um, or rather I should say past the 83 and 93 kilo weight class, the majority of competitors still pull conventional. It's yep. usually only the lighter weight lifters that pull sumo. Um, I don't think there is a single male world champion or national champion who benches with an extreme arch. I don't think a the single big boys, right? You're just talking. No, no, no. I'm saying in general. So okay. any weight class from the 59 kilo men all the way up to the super heavies, I don't think a single open national or world champion uses an, an extensive arch. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the second thing that you mentioned really is the piece of it, which is the programming methodology that I think has led to an an evolution in the sport and just growth overall. You know, a big part of it is also the talent pool uh, because, you know, powerlifting at at one point, you know, is like a lot of like the, you know, the like just grungy white dudes love doing this sport. And it wasn't really like a, an undertaking any sort of, you know, genetically gifted person would go into they try to play real sports but nowadays i think you see a lot more kids concurrently playing their high school or college sport with powerlifting or maybe they try their hand in football or track or baseball or whatever and then make their way into powerlifting afterward because it is so mainstream now and i think that is a big part you know just from a genetic standpoint of why we're seeing this this boom in in numbers right seemingly world records are just getting broken you know, every year, nothing is really, you know, long standing. There's no Usain Bolt 100 meter sprint times that are just untouched, you know, records mm-hmm. are constantly being pushed forward. But I really do believe that the programming side of things is something that's evolved tremendously in powerlifting. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been around long enough, obviously, I'm still, you know, I'm still young, I'm 26, right. But I've seen the the conjugate and west side side of powerlifting. Uh, because even when I started, that was really what was publicly available. You know, if you wanted to learn what, you know, uh, Zor- Mike Zordos was doing or what Eric Helms was doing or what Ben Escrow was doing, like you would have kind of have had to have been in their circle, which, you know, was developing in that 2012, 2013 era. But what was available was you go online, you go on T Nation and you'd find, you know, either... West Side stuff or Chico, or if you were crazy enough to run small off for your squat, you would do something like that, which, you know, I don't know if the people listening or if you're familiar, but small off was like this I, super I high am. volume. Yeah, super yeah. high volume, super high frequency program where they would advise you, like, put into the sheet like 90% of your squat max. Cause if you put 100%, you're just gonna fucking die. And it was like a four day a week program. You, the first day was like a four by nine. The second day was a five by seven. The third day was a seven by five. And the fourth day was like a 10 by three. So like you just had this very limited set of things to, to look for, uh, to, you know, look through and, and decide what you were going to do. But now it's gotten to the point where there's this massive, massive market of powerlifting coaches. Um, and I would say probably around like the 2015 era was when I saw and what I believe to be like that, that hard transition point for powerlifting programming to become what is like considered like modern powerlifting programming. So, so, you know, I am because what you're referring to with West side, Shaco, small off, 
like when I was kind of coming up in as like a newcomer into exercise science, strength and conditioning, you know, that would have been 2006, 2005, mm-hmm. 2006. And um, it was the same stuff. You know what I mean? It, yep. Like that was that was all that was present at that point. You know, like I, I look back at my sort of like breadcrumb trail of like my development and learning about training. And, you know, for me, it kind of was like I, I started really getting into training quite a bit when I was competing in mixed martial arts around 99, 2000, 2001. And I got exposed to kettlebell stuff. And then after that, like one of the guys I trained with gave me all the West Side tapes, you know, literally yep. the VHS, the squat workout, the bench workout. And, um, you know, that was the first time I had ever heard anybody mention percentages, you know, and I was like, I remember trying to transcribe everything that Louie was saying in the videos. And I was like, what in the world is this guy talking about? You know, the bands, the chains, the percentages, everyone's numbers on that wall. And, um, you know, but I was like hooked. Like I was obsessed. I didn't even know what powerlifting was then. You know what I mean? Like I literally had no idea that it was even a sport. And um, so it's, it's kind of crazy, but like, I, I like jumped in, I tried to learn everything I could about West side I never competed, but I wanted to train with that approach because it was so much more sophisticated than anything I had been exposed to at that point. Yeah. And of course, like I just kind of kept diving in, reading all the Russian manuals on weightlifting and trying to go to these original sources that Louis would mention, Berko Shansky, uh, you know, Medvedev, any of these things. And I'm so glad I did. It gave me really like the origins of my like exercise science knowledge about training and programming, but there wasn't a lot to pull from that made a ton of sense. Because even at that age and that time, I was reading Sif and Berko Shansky. I was reading Medvedev. I was reading uh, anything I could coming even from like the, there was Dynamic Alikio uh, website that was super cool with like a lot of you know, European writing and European strength coaches that were coming from that whole school. And I was kind of like, I, I really don't know if this West Side stuff makes any sense. It doesn't correspond with what I'm reading from any of these other sources. Like it uses some of the same words, but it doesn't really hit. And yeah. it's so interesting. You're saying like 2005 is or 2015, that transition point. I don't, I, I just remember at a certain point looking and being like, these, this is not the same language anymore. This is yep. not the same shit. Like the, yep. like the something shifted and it's dramatically different. And so, you know, I ran some small off cycles and some Shaco pieces and all that kind of stuff, just like banging my fucking head through a wall with this stuff and just so miserably sore and fucked up from doing that. <laughs> but, um, you know, when you think about, what some of the fundamentals are of yep. what you would consider modern powerlifting programming and thought processes. What are the the big the big rocks that pop in your head? Yeah, no, for sure. So, I mean, this is a this is a really complicated process. We could definitely get into, and and one of the things that I want to revisit at some point. So, for anyone listening, I took Pat's mentorship uh, about two, almost two years ago now, right? It was during, Crazy. yeah, it's, I think it's two years. Yeah. Like the end of the, the first wave yeah. or whatever of COVID. Yeah. So I ran that, that mentorship. And one of the things that Pat had us do was he had us write our own training models. Um, 
and everybody's first drafts were shit and everybody tore into everybody's, you know, first drafts of their models. And then you go back and say, okay, that was great. You guys. Oh, that was so fun. That was so fun. (laughs) And, um, you know, you, you would get torn into on your model and you realize like, wow, like it's not necessarily incomplete because I don't know these things. It's just that I didn't give myself the time to really think about all the different contingencies and like all the different, you know, exception, not even exceptions to the rule, but the, and this is something that, that, you know, Bill Hartman has mentioned as you, you know, you know, Bill obviously very well better than I do, but like, you know, the, the things on the fringe of your model or the things that look like the exceptions to the rule are really just things that you have not yet integrated into your model and are really characterizable by a a set of rules that maybe you just don't fully understand yet. And I think that's what happened with, with powerlifting training. So, I mean, for me, what makes me feel that like that 2014, 2015 era was the, the turning point for powerlifting training was you had guys like uh, Eric Helms, Mike Zordos, uh, Ben Escrow, and Mike Tashir. Those were like, those are like the four, like, I don't know, grandfathers of modern powerlifting, if you want to, mm-hmm. if you want to call it that, where, you know, some of them had like bodybuilding backgrounds and were integrating powerlifting with bodybuilding. Mike is pretty much the, the founder of RPE in terms of how it's used in a powerlifting context, which is, you know, utilized as like reps in reserve. So like, you know, for anyone listening, who's not familiar a lot of the times in, in powerlifting, you get prescribed, you know, RPEs, for example, on any given set. And I think most people strictly interpret it as 10 minus your reps in reserve. And that's kind of the way that we look at it. Um, and the reason I mentioned that is because I want, you know, to answer your, your question of what are like yeah. the central tenants. And it's, I think the main things that we always think about and, and kind of the things I think about whenever I bring on an athlete are, you know, there's a there's a dose response relationship when it comes to volume and progress and it kind of has this like upside down u shape to it right where in the initial stages you add incrementally more volume and you're going to see this incremental increases right and then it gets to a point where there's an inflection and the rate of increase starts to go down you reach your peak and then if you were to push past that you'd start to see you know less efficient training essentially from doing too much. And the way that I think most coaches look at it nowadays is that every lift kind of has its own graph, right? And the graph can have different curvature to it. And what your goal is as a coach is to figure out what that like maximum adaptable volume is. Meaning like, if we're doing this amount of work for this lift, you know, how much do we need to do in order to see optimal progress? And that's usually something that when you start working with an athlete, you're going to go through the training history that they provide to you. You're going to ask for qualitative feedback in terms of like, hey, when you were running this from this time to this time, you know, were you feeling beat up, but still strong? Were you feeling beat up and piss weak? Were you feeling super fresh, but piss weak, right? There's all these different things that you can use to determine directionality where you say, okay, yeah, they were definitely doing too much, or maybe they were doing too little. And that's why they didn't feel as strong. So one of the goals, like I said, is to really figure out from a dosage and workload standpoint, what is necessary for each lift to progress. Now, building upon that, I think one of the things that's changed really dramatically from older school understanding of of strength training is that you open any textbook and you're going to see like the triphasic model, right? You're going to see this linear periodization, and then you're going to transition into, you know, you're going to go from a hypertrophy or you know, work capacity block, so to speak. And then you're going to transition into a strength block. And then you're going to transition into a peaking block. 
And I think that a strategy like that works pretty well for people who are newer or intermediates to the sport. But I think the thing that really has become apparent, you know, to coaches now that so many high level athletes are in the sport and you as a coach, you know, work with athletes for so many years and get them to the point of really scrapping for two and a half, five kilos on a lift within an entire training year. The thing that you realize is that the window of things that work to get an athlete to progress becomes incredibly small. Mm -hmm. So your opportunity to get progress out of an athlete on a given lift really depends on you figuring out quote unquote, the, the golden microcycle, which is basically like the structure for their training week that is going to just fundamentally yield progress. And, and what gets included in that are, you know, the frequency on each lift. Um, If there are any, you know, variations on a lift that kind of have been conducive to increases in top end strength, those will be included in there. Obviously a volume is a thing that you kind of turn the dials on, right? We kind of want to oscillate back and forth between, you know, being at the peak of that, of that, dose response curve and maybe toning it down at times that we need to tone down and turning it up at times we need to turn up. But the big thing that's changed really is that coaches look at an athlete's lift and say, this is kind of what needs to be present for you to progress like all the time. And what you're going to end up seeing is that a lot of elite power lifters no longer go through. This is a hypertrophy phase. And then this is a strength phase. And this is a peaking phase. Like it's very common if you went and followed, you know, some of the top, uh, you know, drug tested powerlifters and saw what their training looked like three weeks out. Sure, there might be some people who are doing heavy doubles, you know, maybe they're doing like six sets of two on their deadlift or something. But you're going to see some lifters who are doing sets of eight on their deadlift Mm -hmm. during the, the, you know, tail end of a meat prep. And from a from a like textbook understanding of what exercise science says about specificity, you'd be like, well, that makes no fucking sense. Why are we doing that? You know, you should be training singles and doubles because you're close to a meet. And it just it just hasn't worked out that way. And I think that, you know, one of the guys who really, uh, I think, gets a lot of credit for this, this concept being so openly accepted and coaches being willing to really double down on this is, is Mike Tashir, um, because, you know, he founded not only RPE, but he has a concept called um, emerging strategies, which it, it's basically the idea that you craft this, this training block or this, or this training week, the microcycle, and you essentially run the same thing, not in perpetuity, but you run the same thing for a given period of time and you just observe the trends. And the way that you observe the trends is you usually have some sort of top set indicator on any given lift at all times that could be a single that could be a double triple whatever the coach deems to be appropriate but something that is showing you where your performance is every single week is present across all weeks and you just observe and you say okay this week went well and then the next week we saw a jump up at the same rpe and then the next week we saw a jump up at the same rp and then we get to week four and it's the best and then maybe week five you shit the bed and you're like okay well we're not going to cut it here because let's see if this was just a temporary downtick and maybe next week will be better. And then we go on to week six and week six shits the bed and you're like, okay, you know, four weeks is your quote unquote time to peak, right? Coaches don't, or I shouldn't say no coaches do, but I would say most coaches don't adhere to that concept, you know, by the book. But I think that revealed a pretty telling thing about training, which is that 
when we structure things, we very frequently don't make these drastic, you know, changes or, or, you know, switch from these, make these big drastic switches in the characteristics of a certain training block. Because like I said, it really has gotten to a point now where, you know, if you go and follow, you could follow my training, you could follow Taylor Atwood's training, you could follow, you know, Russell Orhe's training and any of these top drug tested guys. It's like, unless they have a meet where they just fucking bomb and like a lift goes completely terribly, like their next meet prep is probably going to look like a very refined version of the previous one. And the next one's going to look like a slightly refined version of that one and a slightly refined version of that one. So those are the, I think the really, really big changes that have, that have taken place in modern powerlifting. And, and along with that, the concept of like, of daily undulating periodization, right. That you can train multiple qualities concurrently. Um, and I think as perceptive coaches, something that really, you know, sets you apart and allows you to really maximize things for your athlete is kind of figuring out what their inherent sensitivities are. And what I mean by that is, you know, as a, there are some athletes who are going to be really high responders to high intensities. There are going to be some athletes who are really high responders to high volumes, right? And it's just like all along the spectrum where now you have this DUP layout, let's say you're squatting three days a week and what it's going to look like for one athlete who's a really high responder to volume, maybe two of those days are like eights and sevens. And then that third day they have like a single and sets of five, but maybe you have another athlete who just through, you know, using these top sets as performance indicators has shown you like, yeah, he's really sensitive to intensity and responds really well to that, but high rep work doesn't do shit for him. So all three days end up looking like, you know, maybe the day one is sets of three to four. And that second day is like technique doubles. And then the third day is a single and triples afterward. Right. So it's like, you're basically, and, and Mike T has a, has a very nice, you know, nice and simple, but very effective phrase is he just says, do what makes you stronger. Right. It's like, it, it sounds simple enough, but it's, it's very true. It's like, if your top end strength responds well to doing sets of 10 on squats, then like, we're going to fucking keep tens in your training for a very long mm-hmm. time. If you don't need to do any back down volume and your top end strength gets, you know, increases, we're going to continue to just train this high peak intensity and lower overall training volume. So there's that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I could keep going forever. I have I a couple of questions. Respond. Like, yeah. You know, Sorry. The last thing that you, no, 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 no. That was fantastic. I want to commend you. That was spoken in a very eloquent manner and like very understandable. And I feel like you really put a lot together there and I'm, I'm grateful to have listened to it quite honestly. I appreciate so, that. Thank um, you. You know, what I was reminded of there at the end of like, do what makes you stronger. Uh, you know, one of my favorite books that I've read is called the emperor of all maladies, the autobiography, not the auto, the biography of cancer. Okay. And, um, you know, it was uh, Siddhartha Murkiji wrote that book. He's a cancer doc in Boston. And, you know, at one point, there was this huge argument in the different factions of cancer doctors. You have the surgeons, you have the radiation people, you have the chemo people, and everyone's like, my shit's better than yours. And someone came along and has one of the greatest quotes of all time, which was, in God we trust, all others must bring data. And it was like, you know what, like, I, I'm like, the guy was like, I'm so sick of everybody having their theory on what's the best 
sequence and, you know, methodology and blah, 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 blah. We need to just follow the damn numbers. Okay. Like everybody in here, let's all admit, like we don't exactly get this shit, but if we find numbers that are good indicators, let's just put people on a good number path. And if the numbers are leading the way that we want, that's the method that's working really well for that person. Yep. And so I remember hearing that and being like, well, well, that makes so much sense for all things exercise more than almost anything I've ever heard, because we're all a bunch of, you know, people that want our special sauce, theoretical, beautiful program shit to be like the, the creme de la creme. But in reality, it's like, does anybody really know? Like maybe, maybe not, but if you can find a really good numbers trajectory, well, keep riding that thing and ride it as far as you can. Um, you know, what I was thinking, like, you know, I'm doing a different mentorship this time, which is 100% just exclusively on model building, you know, yeah. creating your own program and model. And I started off with actually teaching Charlie Francis's uh, model, which is vertical integration. He used that for developing track and field athletes. Yeah. And he broke down the 100 meters, like 200, 100 and 200 meter race, and basically just shows it on a graph of like different distances and different qualities that are associated with being good at the different segments of the race. Like, for instance, if you're, you know, zero to 10 meters is start and acceleration. And to be a great starter and accelerator, it's mostly based off of, you know, your absolute strength. And then it's kind of like, here are ways that we train absolute strength. You know, it was like weights and electrical, uh, you know, stimulation and some other stuff. And then it was like uh, 10 through 20 is speed strength. And here we train that shit with medicine ball throws and jumps. And then 20 through 60 is you know, elasticity. And we trained that with plyometrics and, you know, other, you know, running specific drills and blah, blah, blah. But it was kind of like, uh, and then the last chunk is what he called special endurance, and they had specific, you know, horrific special endurance methods that they trained with. But what he said was, like, all of these qualities are relevant for someone being a great sprinter. And if I'm going to train a person for sprinting, I will have all of these uh, different realms. It'll We'll be training these things all the time throughout the year. There's never a time where we're not working on starts. There's never a time where we're not working on special endurance. There's never a time where we're not working on elasticity and speed strength. And we'll, all of these things will have, you know, we'll hit them, we'll pepper them with modalities. But we're going to have phases where at certain point, this is going to be the focal point. And we're going to train it with developmental volume while the other things are going to be maintained at their current level. And I feel like, you know, Charlie was, was way ahead of his time. And I feel like he really properly interpreted all the European information, the periodization stuff coming out of the Finnish and the Russians and all that sort of stuff. And then I feel like he kind of, at least from my exposure, I didn't encounter anything as logical until I got Mike Isretel's RP stuff and sort of a similar approach but just more refined in terms of talking about volume landmarks. And, you know, I know with, with bodybuilders and like his approach, it might be where, you know, at a certain point in time, you're going to have 
you know, developmental volume for legs and maintenance volume for upper body. And it might switch or something along, or even for those guys that are so refined, it might be like fucking rear delts, get developmental volume and everything else is maintained. Um, <clears throat> and within that developmental volume, you're going between that, you know, uh, minimum effective volume and maximum recoverable volume. And your program basically just continues from starting near MEV and moving towards MRV, wash, rinse, and repeat. But maybe after you run a body part through that, you'll put it into maintenance volume and then you'll hit another body part running through that. Or total body is just in maintenance for a while while your calories at maintenance. And at a certain point, we're going to go into a mass building phase and then we'll shift you into, again, training between MEV and MRV. Like, mm -hmm. just a lot of logical shit, you know? And so when I heard you talking about, like, you know, on one training day, we might be skewing towards higher reps, a little bit more volume. Is it a similar thought process where you're looking at powerlifting and saying, you know, there are some different qualities associated with what makes a good powerlifter. Like, having muscle mass is a quality, like, Actually, training for hypertrophy stimulus is a separate quality than maybe the neurology of your one rep or doubles or whatever. You know, mm. I, I don't even know what sort of language is necessarily used these days. But to me, there would be different qualities that are, you know, slightly different from each other that have slightly different stimulation techniques in the training. And so is that kind of the thought process that like, we're going to make sure we hit these different fundamentally separate fitness qualities. And then maybe at different phases of training, put a focus on one while the other ones are maintained. Does that sound like what's, what's happening these days? Um, to a degree. Yes. I think that is a very good descriptor of just what, what DUP, you know, daily undulating periodization, you know, that's the, I would say the definition of daily undulating periodization and kind of how you would apply it to a powerlifting program in like the textbook sense. So the way that it was originally applied is like, okay, you have multiple qualities, like you're mentioning that you would train concurrently because we believe these are all conducive to improving as a powerlifter. So a perfect example would be you have a three day a week squat program and your day one might be training that hypertrophy quality. So maybe you have three sets of eight on that day and it's at either a, a specific RPE cap or you give the lifter a percentage, which is a whole you know, different conversation we could have at some point. But let's say that day is your hypertrophy day. And then you say, okay, well, I'm gonna have this athlete perform something that's gonna be high intensity, slow velocity, really strength specific. Mm -hmm. um, but putting that next to the hypertrophy day probably isn't the best idea, right? So they, maybe that's gonna be the day three. So what ends up filling that third slot in the middle would be maybe a, a technique day. You know, you could deem this the day where it's either serving, you know, not, I guess not either. It's serving two purposes. It's, it's serving a recovery purpose where you get to practice the movement without really digging any sort of fatigue debt. And then it's also giving you the opportunity to actually practice the movement on a separate session, right? And then that'll be like the feeder session into your, you know, maybe the day you have a top single and heavy triples or, or sets of four afterward, right? Now, I think that the way that things have evolved even past that is, 
And a lot of this really is through practice. Cause one of the things I was going to say is that, you know, as a coach, you develop really, really good heuristics. You develop mm-hmm. really good heuristics based on the shape of an athlete. You develop really good heuristics based on how they lift technically on a given lift. Um, there are heuristics based on just like gender and weight class that we've just kind of learned over the years in terms of, you know, you get a 52 kilo female athlete, like the way that you train them, or at least the way that your intuition leads you to start them off, it's probably going to be a little bit different than if you got a, you know, 120 kilo male, right? Like there's these little things that you pick up on. And I think the thing that, you know, that DUP model has allowed us to do. And a, a big thing that's, that's led to, I think the point that we're at now is that you are able to, and it's been accepted that you can kind of train top end strength all year round, right? And it's that you're not taking time away from pushing high peak intensities, pushing, you know, top singles. Um, It's kind of something that is always present. And obviously, if there are athletes with different sensitivities, some might not get it all year, but maybe they get it some of the year. And some athletes might just really respond well to having singles all the time and they have it all year, right? But I think the thing that really has, has, transformed how we program is the fact that we have performance indicators all the time, right? Because we can go through things with a very well detailed plan and say, oh, well, if we spend time working on this quality that we believe is the bottleneck, then maybe down the road, we'll see, you know, a huge uptick in, in performance, right? And sometimes you plan something like that out and it just shits, like it just does nothing, right? Like you come off this hypertrophy block and you transition into something else and like, Everything you want it to happen just doesn't happen. Or maybe you transition into that next block and your numbers are blowing up. But then the problem you run into is, well, was it what I was doing before or is it what I'm doing now? Because especially like you can really turn someone's training around really quickly. Like it's actually pretty impressive how you can have an athlete just eating shit and having a horrible, horrible block or prep and you make a change that you're really confident, like, yep, this is the thing that they need. And just week to week, they come back to their peak. Like they just come alive really quickly, right? So having the opportunity to assess performance every single week is what helps you as a coach realize, okay, yeah, this thing that we're doing is really working or no, this thing needs to change, right? So if there truly is a bottleneck, right? Like I have lifters who, you know, I could think of like some female lifters who are just monster squatters, monster deadlifters, but like their arms are fucking tiny. They have no chest. It's like, okay, I know for your bench, the bottleneck is the amount of muscle you have. Like maybe we, you know, I think our our bias now in powerlifting coaching is high specificity, but like, I'm not going to have you bench six days a week. Like that's not your problem. Like you need to be able to do push-ups without getting tired after five, or you need to be able to do dips or a dumbbell press or a machine press. Right. So if there truly is a bottleneck like that, then yes, we'll train that quality that we think is going to be that le- that lends itself to um, your overall progress. And the thing that's really nice is that most of the time we can train those qualities concurrently with, with the other training, you know, methodologies that we're trying to implement. Um, but to expand upon the whole textbook DUP definition that you alluded to, um, you really get to a point where based on the performance indicators based on the feedback you're getting from the athlete, you get to a point where you really do realize like, you know, let's say we have that three day structure again for squat. Like I mentioned before, there might be an athlete with that three day structure who 
really just squats low rep all the time, or maybe they just eat up volume. Like I have a lifter. I'll give you an example. I have a lifter, a Tomu. Um, he's an 83 kilo lifter. He used to work with one of my really, really good friends, Brad Couliard, fantastic coach. And what happened with Atomu was he'd have amazing off seasons, absolutely would crush rep PRs, you know, hitting, you know, eight rep maxes with weights that used to be like top triples for him or sets of five. And then they would transition into their meat prep and they'd be doing fives and triples and doubles. And week by week, you just get weaker and weaker and weaker. Mm. And it's like, oh, I'm fatigued. Like, okay, let's taper. Taper shows up to meet day, still weak. Right. And one thing that I think that I've, you know, as like a contribution that I've had to the powerlifting community from like a coaching standpoint and a programming standpoint really is kind of doubling down on those seemingly non-specific programming modalities. And when you see, when you see that like the oil is hot, like you just, you just keep cooking with it. Right. So with Atomu, when he started working with me, I was like, we're going to keep your rep ranges up on all three days. And as we make our way through a prep, that third day where you have, you know, the day of the week that you're competing. So to give you more context, like we want predictability of performance as a coach. So if you compete on a Saturday, it's really nice if your squat feels the best on Saturday. It's just peaking for the meat a lot easier. Right. So for Atomu, we had three days of pretty high rep squatting, you know, had a single on that third day. And then as we made our way deeper into the meat prep, I was like, those two days are staying high rep, but that third day we'll start to trickle it down. You know, maybe sevens will become sixes, sixes will become fives. But I sense a sensitivity that once we pass a threshold for you of average intensity, that the stimulus changes and we can no longer just equate volume to volume, right? We can't just look at tonnage and say, well, you did the same amount of tonnage here on these fives as you did with eights. So it should be fine, right? Like based Based on how a lifter moves, based on the information that they're presenting to you, like you, you pick up on these sensitivities and that's what makes you craft this unique plan for them. So you know, I'm curious, low- like not to, I, I mean, it, yes, to interrupt, but I'm, oh, I'm actually just so, so curious about this because it almost sounds to me like when I think about what's gonna like a, like a quality, you know what I mean? Like hypertrophy as a fitness quality. And like what's going to drive hypertrophy is, is, you know, enough tension and more volume over time. that's going to be between those landmarks. And, but it almost like in some ways it doesn't necessarily matter what the rep ranges are, as long as you're approximating failure to some degree, um, you know, versus in my mind, there's like rate of force development as a quality. And it's going to be something where it's going to be high velocity stuff and you're going to cut it the moment that you're dipping below that because you're trying to train that neurological quality of just like, you know, how quickly can you synchronize all the fire fibers to fire together with tremendous uh, rate coding, you know, it just, it lives in that world. And then there's kind of like, uh, you know, just, just various other things, like elasticity from, from tendons versus torque from muscles, blah, blah, blah. There's a million different qualities that we could list and list and list. But, you know, when I think about what you're talking about, you're, you're, you are talking about like, um, you know, just developing strength and just hitting it through different rep ranges. It almost sounds like to me more than necessarily like, uh, like a hypertrophy day versus like a neurology day. 
you know, am I totally off with that? Or, or does that sound like really what you're after? Because if I was thinking about a hypertrophy block, it wouldn't necessarily have to do with like, uh, we're just doing higher rep ranges. <clears throat> it would have to do more with like, well, we're going to just really do more sets of this stuff over time. Like we know that this person needs, it's different when I think about powerlifting versus bodybuilding, because mm-hmm. it's not as muscle group specific, maybe. It might yeah. be just like squat hypertrophy, deadlift hypertrophy, bench hypertrophy, but it would be kind of like utilizing those exercises and maybe some complementary exercises with just more sets lumped in there to grow those muscles versus if I'm just trying to stimulate the, the sense of strength as a quality, the sets wouldn't really change that much. But I could just be doing it through different rep ranges. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know if the question's even emerging appropriately, but maybe. No, I, yeah, I mean, I, under, I definitely understand what you're saying. I think that the way that, that I like to look at things is that depending on what lift it is, depending on how they perform the lift, like literally like technique-wise, how they perform it, and then consequently what they, they feel from it, I like to look at it as every rep has an associated stimulus that you take away from it and then an associated cost. Yeah. Right. And that associated stimulus and cost comes from the bar speed, right? It's just like at what, how, what is the proximity to failure on this rep, which is usually correlated with what percentage of your one RM is actually on the bar. And I think the thing that we, we learn over time, right. You know, with the example that I was talking about there is that, you know, for someone like Atomu, the the benefit of moving at slow velocities, recruiting, you know, as many high threshold motor units as a result, right? For whatever reason for him, you know, there's a big drop off or there's a, there's a, a, a rapid rate of fatigue accumulation associated with each unit increase of having to perform reps that hard, mm-hmm. Right where there are other athletes that they can thrive off that, or they have good repeatability of, of performance from set to set. Maybe they don't accumulate a disproportionate amount of fatigue in certain areas. So here's another thing, right? It's like, you know, you think of someone squatting and, you know, they, they do a heavy set and the next day their lower back is just smoked, right? Like that's pretty, that's actually pretty common, right? So for example, if, if I have an athlete who's doing sets of eight on squat and, you know, the next day their back is smoked, you know, that might be a lifter where performing high rep squatting just might not make sense as a, as a way to push them forward. If along with that, their, you know, top end strength is not going up. Right. So the way that I like to look at it is like with someone like Atomu, like I said, there is not a benefit to performing X past X number of reps at this velocity, at this RPE. Right. And we, we essentially have within our training week, like a, a bucket that we can fill up with maximizing our, our stimulus for this lifter. Right. And what we want to do is accumulate, or, you know, we want to maximize the amount of stimulus we can get out of this training week on this lift and either minimize fatigue or just keep it at a level that is, you know, predictable and still allowing high performances to come through. Right. And every rep that you do kind of fits on this graph where it's like, okay, if I do this, this rep at 70%, it has like a pretty low stimulus uh, benefit to extract from it, but also the fatigue cost is pretty low, 
right? And these are like the little, the little wins that I can accumulate, right? I can, I can fill my bucket with these little low risk, low reward reps. Yeah. And I have my high risk, high reward reps where if you're someone like a Tomu, sure, that one rep is super specific, but I just fucking drop off disproportionately hard if we have four working sets above 80 or 85% within a given training week. Yeah, just, it's just like if I need to maximize the the amount of volume in my bucket or maximize the adaptations that we see, I can't fill it up with all these reps that are associated with such a high fatigue cost. And yep. maybe for him, I need to get those little wins from those lower percentage, further pro- proximity from failure, higher velocity reps. Yeah. I have a, so like, let's say I'm, I'm comparing Otomu and we're going to call him athlete A. And then we have athlete B who's kind of the antithesis of him. Yeah. And so I'm going to compare their programs. Yep. And it seems like Otomu does really well with higher rep sets. Yep. And just gets, you know, crushed by trying to make them go too close to one rep max. And like, just doesn't seem worth it versus the antithesis athlete B lifter, just like for whatever reason, higher reps do nothing for them, thrives off of like really close to one rep max kind of training. Are they doing the same number of sets of that stuff per week or yeah, that's kind of where I'm going. So, with this. so here's the thing. The overall volume I think is a separate metric that you have to manage and observe as a coach. So yeah. I have a lifter that I worked with who was the antithesis to Otomo. He squatted three days a week and he would perform anywhere from like 12 to 16 total reps of squat a week. And he blew up. Like he was a 700 plus pound squatter mm-hmm. and he did not respond well to high rep squatting. Um, it just like created this systemic fatigue that just made him super weak in, in successive mm-hmm. sessions, but he could push a single at RP nine or a double at RP nine. And two days later, be able to push a heavy triple at RP eight or RP nine. And then two days later, be able to squat a heavy single at RP nine. Like it did not matter. And at no point was the goal to say, okay, well he's squatting lower rep. We're going to have to equate volume or, you know, maybe have a higher set count to be comparable to someone else, his size, it's like that probably would have crushed him too. So the sensitivity to rep ranges is something that I view as related, but also separate to the overall volume, right? right? A lot of the, a lot of the, um, the feedback that I'm going to use for dictating overall volume is the, you know, the, okay, you know, where is the soreness? How are you, how are you feeling? Are you feeling, you know, more beat up? Are you feeling uh, like your muscles are sore? Are you feeling like your top end strength is not there? So all of those, you know, that those factors are also things that we consider when talking about like the rep range stuff, but you kind of go through this trial and error thing where you start, you know, if you have an athlete who you're struggling with and you're not really getting the desired result, And you look at things from the overall volume systemic standpoint and you say, okay, well, yeah, this is probably excessive. Let's start to pull things down. And then you work in this more moderate overall workload setup and things still suck. And you're like, hmm, like what else can we look toward? And I think one of the things that you wouldn't really look toward maybe seven, 10 years ago was this like more, you know, nonspecific, just accepting, do what you do, what makes you stronger, 
type of stuff where if you had a lifter that you were doing, you know, low to moderate rep range stuff and, you know, we pulled volume down and they're still not progressing, that might be uh, the next step that we take. And I think the way that you, you know, it's really through the experience as a coach that you learn that directionality really quickly. Mm. Um, you know, I think of like a lot of like really lanky sumo deadlifters, like they respond really well to like sets of eight sets of 10, and you're going to have those present for like a big portion of their training year. And like, you know, I, I think of myself, you know, I've pulled, I've pulled 727 pounds in competition. I've pulled 750 in the gym, uh, Angelo Fortino. He currently has the world record in my weight class. He deadlifted, uh, 783 at nationals as a, as a 182 pound guy. And like his two weeks out, he's doing, you know, sets of eight on deadlift. And like you go and talk to Louis Simmons, you know, you dig him from the grave, rest in peace. And you say, Hey, we have this world record deadlifter. Who's out pulling your 300 pound roided up dudes in suits. And he's doing eights on his deadlift two weeks out from competition. You'd have a fucking heart attack and you'd yeah. be back in the grave. Right. It just wouldn't correspond to his understanding and model. Exactly. You know, when it comes to, when I think about, you know, West side and, you know, it's, it's kind of this like rotation of max effort, dynamic effort, repeated effort method. And, um, you know, with the same kind of fitness quality concept, like max effort method, maximum recruitment, you know, that's like the point of it repeated effort method, rate coding, like how quickly can we get the, the, you know, the neurons to get the muscles to actually fire and turn on and, uh, you know, and then repeated effort method for muscle mass, you know, and yep. sort of saying like, these are really important things. And, and it's, and so many different uh, things came out of that, you know, and I was, I, I was thinking in some ways like daily undulating periodization, it's it, the tier method was an early early version of that with, yep. you know, sort of rotating through these things like Monday yep. will be uh, max effort squat, repeated effort bench, dynamic effort, total body. And that was such a common collegiate football strength and conditioning program, um, you know, just prolific. And um, but the, the main thing that I'm going for here is the dynamic effort method. Do you think that there's like still a, is that, does that something that still lives in powerlifting? Are people still like interested in this speed component and saying like, Hey, the reason that you're missing these lifts is you're not fast enough. Or is that kind of like, see you later? No, I think that's kind of, I think that's kind of died. You know, nobody performs. So, so here's kind of how I think most like high level lifters think about their lifting. Like I've, I've been doing Q and A's a ton on my, on my social media. And somebody asked me, they're like, Oh, like, what do you think about to get, you know, rebound out of the hole on squat? And I saw that and I'm just like, this is like a, you know, high school lifter mindset where you're actually thinking of how do I get out of the bottom fast? There are no, there are zero high level lifters who are ever thinking, how can I get out of the bottom really quickly? Mm -hmm. speed is is never something that anybody thinks about on any of their lifts really the the focus is always just creating that global tension maintaining position and trusting that being high pressure and high tension in the right position is what's going to bring you back up out of it so there's definitely a, a parallel to it you know like 
the the dynamic effort slot that that Louis came up with is definitely represented in some capacity. You know, we talked about that DUP model where mm-hmm. we have that middle squat day. Like you wouldn't necessarily call it a speed day, but like if you're doing 70% for triples, like it, it's it's kind of that. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody's throwing bands and chains on a bar anymore with 45% and trying to blow it through the ceiling because I, I just don't think that that has a a real uh, transference because, you know, when you're trying to lift that fast, like that's not the same technique you're using on your actual lifts. Um, but yeah, I mean, simply put at the, at the highest level, no, like speed programming is just not a thing anymore at all. Yeah. It's so interesting how much that's changed yeah. and it, it does make sense. It's, it's not a sport that's where fast. <laughs> time is of the essence. Yeah, yeah. There's not a limitation. No one's there with a stopwatch being like, I oh, didn't lift that fast enough. It either goes or it doesn't go, you know? Yep. So it's a, it's a really odd concept, but yep. um, the, the thing I wanted to transition to next, because I think that was a great discussion. And um, you know, me personally, like, Hey, the reason I'm doing this podcast, I want to have these conversations. I want to learn if the audience learns well, great, whatever. <laughs> Fuck but, them. This is about me. Yeah. This is, yeah. What do you think this is? Yeah. But, um, you know, I, um, you know, you're someone that's explored a lot of different avenues and, you know, I think you've looked into movement models. Uh, most of the time it's like, look, like I, I feel like at a certain point, if you push fitness far enough, you're going to probably hurt yourself. And I think that most of the time that's when people start looking into movement models. I don't know yep. if that was the case for you. Um, but you know, there's a whole bunch of movement models, whether you're talking, you know, bill and expansion and compression. I mean, I, I hate saying that because it's such a reduction of this man's enormous scope of work, but yeah. it like kind of gets the point across, you know, there's kind of like chasm with lines of pull. And I, that's similar where it's like, it really reduces it down below what, what he's really after. Um, you know, there's all, there's other stuff out there. And I don't know how much you've gone into other worlds of whatever you want to get into PRI, FRC, um, like which of these things have you found to be helpful? And is there a particular direction you see yourself going with some of these, you know, whatever you want to call it, movement model related concepts? Yeah. I mean, honestly, man, I've really, I've really been able to find value in every school of thought that I've explored. And this is something that I've always told people, um, you know, over the past several years of, of really being a face in coaching in this sport is that, you know, I think that you always will have something to learn from everybody. And I think that the best models are created when you find what is useful or pertinent to you from any given model and integrate it. It could be big or small. Um, You know, the thing that really got me to dive into movement is just that, you know, obviously there are times where I've dealt with my own pains and aches and I want to get over them so I can get back to lifting the way that I want. But, you know, with powerlifting coaching, like I've built up a, a pretty strong roster and, you know, a lot of other coaches out there have done the same and, and athletes stay with their coach for three years, five years, seven years, 10 years. And it's like exactly what you're saying. You know, the sport of powerlifting has become very high specificity, very redundant. If you work with any athlete long enough, or if an athlete gets strong enough, it's like, they're going to run into something. Mm-hmm. It, it might be pretty easy to fix with, you know, just 
good understanding and, and a systematic approach to load management where it's like, okay, you know, low bar is really bothering your, you know, SI joint. Uh, do you have an SSB? Yeah. Does it feel better to squat with that? Yeah. All right, cool. Fuck it. Let's use that now. And then you get over that in three weeks and then they're back to squatting again. Right. Like there are plenty of problems that can get solved through that lens. Right. But I think that, and, and there are plenty of times where I am looking at problems through that lens, but I think that what uh, opened my eyes to kind of the more, you know, uh, movement-based stuff and, and guys like Bill and learning from, from guys like you um, was one of my the people I consider a mentor back in, you know, 2016. I don't know if you know Elish Lee. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Elish was a, was a big part of my, of my powerlifting career and just life in general and helped me a lot in exploring um, kind of the world of, of PRI to start. I, I guess, you know, Elish took from a lot of different things and kind of had his own approach, but that's what really opened my, my eyes to that. And I think that what was so incredible about my personal experience with that was I would go to see him and like, I could do movements and train exactly the way that I was and not have pain. Mm-hmm. And obviously there, you know, there are plenty of, of skeptics of, of Bill's model and your model when it comes to positional, uh, you know, looking at things through a, a more positional lens and whether or not through orienting yourself differently and changing your breathing and all this sort of stuff, whether or not that actually works. But, you know, the way that I've always looked at it is like, we're, we're outcome focused. Like if we can, if we can implement something and it gets the desired outcome, like it fucking worked. Like, I don't care what the the reason is for it. It doesn't matter. I'm not administering someone an experimental drug that can give them a fucking tumor 10 years down the road. I'm telling them to do an exercise. It doesn't really matter to me. So when I started to, you know, have this super high retention rate of athletes that were serious about powerlifting, it's like, yeah, like I, I run into somebody with knee pain or back pain or hip pain and I think it's the responsibility of a coach at the very least to have the network of people to solve this problem. But you're going to be able to get people back on track way quicker if you at least have an ability to, to play damage control or at the very best, like solve the problem. You know, I, I think I'm honest with myself when things are outside of my scope and there are plenty of times I refer people out and the people I refer them to do a fantastic job. But, you know, there have legitimately been times where, I have an athlete who's like, I can't bend down to pick up a 45 pound plate. Oh my God, my life's over. I'm not going to be able to squat tomorrow. And I'm like, go do a 90, 90 Hemi bridge with a yoga block between their knees. And they're like, holy fuck, I feel perfect now. And like, everything's over. Right. So it's like, I, you know, I don't want to say necessarily that like a, a specific school of thought has been more important than another, because I think that the, you know, the load management side of things and, and, uh, an approach through that, I think, what, what's really valuable from that is you can explain pain to athletes in a very non-scary way and just give them like this systematic, logical approach for like, okay, this is where we're going to approach this from now. You're going to do what you can. You can establish honest pain thresholds for yourself. You're going to be able to train. You don't need to catastrophize things, whatever, right? But yeah, I mean, it's it's been it's been a mixture. It's, it's definitely been a, a huge... Uh, you know, hybrid of like all these different schools. And I would say what really, you know, opened that world up to me was my personal experience with Elish. Um, but yeah, I just, I hate, you know, the, the people who kind of are, are in a camp and everybody outside of their camp is stupid and wrong. Yeah. And there's only one way through which to look at this, this problem. And, and, you know, that's yeah. what I've always 
tried my hardest to avoid ever becoming like. You know, I, I couldn't agree more. Well, first of all, I want to say, like, I always love hearing people from my past get brought up. And, you know, I've always been extremely fond of Elish. And, uh, you know, I we go way back, man. I remember when I came down to New York, it was to work for Peak Performance. And at that time, like, you know, I was supposed to move into a brand new building on 14th and 5th. And, um, you know, I was the director of training and Doug Kachigian was the director of rehab. And we were bringing in a whole bunch of trainers and we had like a stacked roster of trainers. And Elish was one of those guys. And um, I was just so excited about working with him because very smart guy, super, you know, at that point in time, like he was competing at a very high level in powerlifting, very strong, really good athlete, very motivated. And, um, you know, I didn't know he was a professional tennis player before, yeah. that, you know? And, um, and so I think that a lot of those, those elements, like he was, he, he still is, you know, he's, I'm not sure what he's up to these days. I know life has taken him in some different directions, but yeah. I really think that in, in he's, he's one of the more talented people I've ever encountered uh, in the field. And yeah. so it's, it's always really nice to hear and also just a really good human being. You know, I yeah. really, oh, absolutely really value that element that he brings to it. So it's really nice when I hear like somebody like that was, was kind of like your, your intro person into, into that world. And so um, that's always just cool to hear. And then I, you know, I don't know what it is about me that makes me hate clicks, you know, to a super high degree. And, um, and in a lot of ways, it's, it's, I feel like it's cost me in a lot of instances from ever fully like having like a close group in a lot of ways, because every time I see a group form, I usually see it get so clicky and I'm like, ah, I don't, I don't like this. Like it, there's always someone or a few people that are like, uh, you know, castaways that seem to be the focal point of negativity that that group will, will kind of like will shun in some ways. And I'm always like, why do we dislike this person? I don't, I don't get it. And um, even, you know, I can fall into it. And then I'm like, I don't even, I don't really like what's happening here, but the tribalism and the factions in fitness can be really crazy. And, um, you know, I can remember hearing uh, Brandon Groover talk one time and he's a, he's an absolute monster when it comes to understanding biomechanics and he he's been working in professional sports for a while and uh baseball basketball and this dude can teach this stuff so well and like you watch someone break down like film of like a a basketball player or a pitcher and delivery and just be like this is you know what's happening at their foot and going up the chain and like throwing everything off in terms of the delivery it's like god damn this guy doesn't miss a detail this is unbelievable but um, I remember hearing him finish a talk once, and I think it was at the old Boston Sports Medicine and Performance Group meetings, which were fantastic and have gone away since, you know, Art Horn used to run the show at Northeastern. He organized these amazing meetings, and he went off and, and started working in pro basketball, and that meeting set died, which was a shame because those were the best. But, um, you know, Groover ends his talk, and he was like, you know – 
I don't really understand why people get so mad in this field. He's like, we're literally all barking up the same tree, but we get pissed at each other for the way that we bark, you know, like who gives a shit? Like we all are looking for the same kinds of outcomes. We want to have the athletes we work with move better and have better results in their chosen sports. And it's like, you know, your approach is going to be a little bit different than mine, just based on our backgrounds and who we learn from and, and their views and all that kind of shaping. But like, honestly, I'm, I just want to get better, you know, and I want to learn everything. Like I'm not like, so it's, it's really interesting how much ego comes into that and how much like uh, not just ego, but trying to protect mentors and it's like you have to let go of that attachment stuff to whatever it is and get beyond it. Otherwise, it becomes this siloed sort of a thing, and it hinders the progress going forward for everyone. And um, I don't know, like, it's just something where it's nice to hear that, that from your perspective on that, like, look, man, everybody has a lot to offer. And I feel the same way. Like, there are so many people that have so much to offer. And I, it's funny, like I actually, I've, I've, I've gone back and forth. I think it's, it, I think they pronounce it Goda. It has to be Goda because I know I've pronounced it wrong in the past and called them Goada. But, you know, those dudes, I feel like I look at some of their movements and I'm like, yeah, okay, that's cool. Like I'm picking up what you're putting down. Like, you know, you're, you're getting people to like turn over a femur and you're creating IR and ER and like, those are cool movements, but they act like they invented it or something. You know what I mean? Like they act like they invented the way human bodies move and they try to like take so much ownership over it and like, like just fucking throw poison at you. Mm -hmm. And, and it's like, man, like what's, up with that like i don't i don't really understand it and well, I mean, I, i've talked to other people that are like in sports coach stuff too and they're like man if you think that's bad you should see how bad it is with golf coaches uh you know yelling at each other over over you know swing mechanics and things like that like it's it's pretty common but um you know like is that something that exists in the powerlifting world or even if it doesn't, like, what do you think? Do you think we can kind of move past this shit? Or, like, what's the roots of it? I don't know. Whatever your thoughts are on that. Um, so, I mean, whether or not – I'll answer the second one first, whether or not we can move past it. I mean, the thing is, like, you know, ego is always going to be part of coaching because you want your way of doing things to yield the best results, and you don't want to see someone else get out of the same athlete a better result. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you can maintain that your knowledge is proprietary, then you're always of value. Right. So like what you said with Goda is like, that's, that's that, right. If you can make it, if you can bundle it up and make it seem proprietary, then, you know, you're always the person we're going to go to when we want to learn how to turn on a femur. Um, I mean, within powerlifting, like there definitely is, you know, uh, there are differences in, in how coaches program, right. Like there's always going to be these little kind of nuggets that you wouldn't really know that someone believes in or, or implements unless you really spoke to them. Uh, like there's stuff that I've talked about on here that like my, you know, my approach is probably a little bit different than, you know, my own coach's approach who programs for me. And then, you know, some other coaches out there, but I think it, 
there, it's kind of difficult to um, truly like hide how you do things in powerlifting, even if you even if you wanted to, just because like it is su- it's a sport that has grown so much through social media, and you're going to see what an athlete is doing. You're going to see how an athlete progresses. You're going to know which set of these athletes are under the same coach. So it's like, even if you weren't yourself a really expert coach, you'd be able to kind of piece together the way that a coach thinks about programming for an athlete. And if you know where they're at and how many weeks out there out from a meet, you you can kind of piece together the timing element of it as well. So, I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely, you know, different schools of thought, but I wouldn't say that in powerlifting people are clutching things too close to the vest. Mm. I don't know if it's because there's, I, you know, I'd be, I guess I'd be foolish to say that we're just like, a, you know, from a, from a moral standpoint or from an ego standpoint, just superior, right? I think it's more so just that it's, it's almost more difficult to do, even if you wanted to. So I think people just don't do it. It's like, okay, what am I going to benefit from this? You kind of have to show your hand in a way to, to garner the interest and, and demonstrate to the people that, follow you that you're capable of taking them to that level if they hired you as a coach. Right. You know, maybe it's just that I, I feel like I've, I, you know, my, my coach in mixed martial arts, he, uh, he got criticized by a lot of the Brazilian guys that we trained with. And they used to always say like, man, you're, you're teaching these guys too much, too fast. You know what I mean? Like we got to kind of string them along longer and because otherwise like, you know, they're, that's just the approach that we use. Like, you got to remember they're still paying clients and you don't want to, you don't want to interrupt that, that process of being able to earn as you kind of like, like gradually introduce them to new techniques. And and my coach was like, man, I don't give a shit about any of that. Like there's so much to learn and there will be an indefinite amount to learn in this sport forever. I'm just trying to make other people as good as they can get as fast as I can get them so that they're better training partners for me. Yeah. And because the better that everybody else is, they'll make me better. And then the better I am, I'll make them better. And it'll just feed together. And so I think that that was like a very big thing for me in shaping my mindset on a lot of things. And, you know, in coming as a professor, you know, I had a lot of really brilliant students. And it's funny, like I worked with a number of them in New York City as well. And, you know, watching them progress in their abilities – it always drives me crazy because I'm a competitive person. It's like, oh, I don't want you to know more than I do about this particular topic. Like, I'm going to hit the books that much harder. I'm going to go in on this topic and, like, really, really push past it. And so, to me, that's always, like, the approach that I'm going to take is I want to put as much information as I possibly can out so I can make as many other people better as fast as possible but the reason I'm doing that is because I want all of you to come back and challenge me and make me be able to reach the ultimate heights I can get to. Because to me, competition is only the, the best part of competition is it's going to push me to levels I could never get to without that being present. Mm-hmm. And so the other thing is I look at it is like, Man, I've been putting out everything I possibly can in as as long as I can. And the number of people that actually get it and understand it and can put it all together is so small. I've never been worried about running out of information. 
You know what I mean? Like information hoarding to me is never the problem. It's just like such a fear-based mindset to, yeah. to, that people come with, as opposed to like, I, I think like a growth mindset with it. And so I totally get what you're saying from like a, in a, a, propi- a proprietary standpoint of like, hey, I got the secret sauce. I want to keep the secret sauce. I don't want you to get your hands on it. But I, I don't, I just subscribe to a different view on that. Yeah. Like fucking throw that secret sauce out there as fast as you can spread it as far as you can have that shit come back on you and allow the pressure of the feeling to make you elevate. Cause I don't know about you, but like, I don't do anything unless I have to, you know, like I really, but when the pressure's on, man, I always come out swinging. Like, Whenever I tell people my approach to like finances, they're like, are you insane? I'm like, eh, probably, but I always paint myself into corners. So I have to do the next thing and make more money. You know, yeah. it's like, eh, otherwise I'm just going to sit on my ass and not really do anything. Mm-hmm. So it's just, I, I don't know. I, I do think it's cool. Just like the fact that there's different perspectives on it. And what you said rang true in a way for me that I hadn't really considered before uh, regarding that, that particular topic. Yeah. Um, you know, I know that we're we're getting kind of like towards the, the end of time here. And, um, you know, I want to just say, like, first of all, it's, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. And again, like I'm very impressed by your ability to just organize thoughts and to present them in a very sequenced manner that just comes across as, as very uh, clear and logical and progressive. And that to me is always like, I don't feel like I don't meet enough people and interact with enough people that bring that. And it just like, it's something that, that kind of energizes me as a person. I really appreciate um, you saying that, man. Thank you. Um, One of, you know, it's funny you say that because like one of the, the things that, you know, obviously I, I, you know, when was this, I guess three years ago now, a little, a little over three years ago is when I first met you and started, you know, learning things either, you know, in coming to see you or just through, social media or through the mentorship. And one of the things that I've always loved about listening to you speak is that you're such a good storyteller. And I think that the way that when you ever, when you present information, you do it in a very um, storytelling way. And that's always been more engaging to listen to, in my opinion, I'm sure it made, you know, you as a professor, probably more engaging for students because there's nothing worse than having just like a super dry, like by the books, just, things in a very soulless sequential fashion, you know, being presented that way. So, you know, I think back to like my undergraduate career and how few professors I had where I was like, okay, I actually am enjoying listening to you lecture me right now. So, you know, when I first heard you speak, I was like, oh, this is like so refreshing. Like I really enjoy hearing the way that you convey information. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, You know, it's something that for me, I think uh, I always wanted to be an athlete. You know what I mean? Like I always wanted to be a, a pro athlete, a total jock. And, um, you know, I hated school as a kid. I really did. I, I totally like blew it off, didn't really participate. And then when I finally found like exercise science, it was like, oh, I really like learning this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then because I was excited about it, I actually put a lot of effort into it. And then it was this weird realization of like, oh no, I'm a fucking nerd. 
Like I'm really good. <laughs> I'm really good at reading and writing and like presenting material. Like, yeah. Oh no, my whole pursuit because I totally got into it just to be a bigger meathead. Literally, when people ask me like, "Oh, what motivated you?" I'm like, "Well, I was, a, you know, a professional fighter, and I wanted to just become as physically nasty as I could." You know what I mean? I just want to unlock every training secret. And then in the process, it was like, oh, the thing that I unlocked was actually the fact that I, I'm smart. Fuck. Like <laughs> now, now my life is going to revolve around being smart. Like what, I didn't see that coming. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it was like, I, I always really struggled with like interpersonal relationships and like forming friendships and like uh, understanding that, that realm of communicating with people. And I think that a big part of that led to being really good at directly communicating to groups. It was like, I'm so fucking lousy at this one-on-one stuff that I'm just going to go over here and I'll get really good at this because this will give people a reason to want to talk to me, you know? And, um, and it was very difficult for me to try to segue out of that and actually working in personal training helped amazingly with that because you just find yourself stuck one-on-one with another person like five times a day with a different person and then learning how to engage with them. But, um, you know, it's in many ways, like I do think sometimes you will end up with like a, something that you'll excel at, but it is the result of something else being really diminished and having to really rely in this other area for positive reinforcement. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of like, you know, I can remember even early on, like realizing like, oh, when I get up in front of people and speak, like it works. And so I just kept sort of pushing the limits, pushing the limits and trying my hand at like analogies and storytelling and it just sort of working. So it is, it is, look, it feels good to, to hear that kind of feedback, but I always like to get across to people like, you know, there's usually a reason why people might be good in some particular area. And oftentimes it's not necessarily this super happy story behind it. And Mm -hmm. um, because to me, it's like, there's so many people that I think could be tremendously gifted and make a huge impact on the world, but probably have such a negative sort of perception going on in their head that they can't get out of their own way. And in many ways, like if someone can just have that be shut off for a second, find something they're good at and then just drive into it, you know, that that's what changes lives to me. And, um, and just sort of seeing you be someone that has that entrepreneurial spirit that's been able to create a world of your own within powerlifting and coaching powerlifting and to be living kind of a dream is, you know, it's a beautiful thing. And I, I just think that it's like getting those stories and hearing what, what people are all about and hearing your passion for understanding programming and all of this stuff. Like, I feel like it, it just oozes out and it's a message that more people need to hear. And, and certainly people that are lovers of program design, I think will love this particular episode. But yeah. what to me comes across is 
for you as someone that I mean, where where did you go to to school for undergrad? Just so people know. Yeah, so I I went to MIT for undergrad. I was a mechanical engineer, and then I also picked up pre med halfway through. Yeah, you're a little bit high achieving and very <laughs> high end when it comes to like intellectual capabilities, you know. And you know your your profession is working within powerlifting now. Mm-hmm. And so, but it it's got to be like all I want to say is like you have no idea what kind of end places that you get mm-hmm. that you get to in life. It's the ability to be able to follow those things yeah. and to allow those things to emerge. It takes some time. It takes some willingness. And I guarantee there's been some bumps in the road for you and that, <laughs> you know, it's, you still have gotten to this place and it's not the end by any means, but uh, yeah. like, to me, it's something where it's like, I find it inspiring that you've crafted this life and built this, this realm for yourself. I really appreciate that, man. And, and what you had said before about, you know, your own experience and, and how it like, didn't necessarily come out of this, like, oh, this is the thing I always want to do. And I just, you know, initially just poured myself into it and it all worked out that way. It's almost like you, you know, you got backed into a corner, you, you knew what your, uh, your deficits were and then were revealed your strengths in finding out where you were falling short and then kind of double made the decision and, you know, had the courage to double down. I mean, that was, I mean, that was my experience, honestly, you know, I, I always wanted to be an athlete as well. I loved baseball, but I always had a, I was just always the smart kid growing up. And it was, you know, in, in early years, like just kind of very easy to fulfill those responsibilities. Cause like how difficult is elementary school? How difficult is middle school? Even high school. It's like, all right, you like study for, you know, an hour, two hours and like you're golden, you know, you can crush whatever exam that it is. And, and I knew that growing up, like academics were not my passion at all. Um, around middle school age, I was a, a kind of like a, not a bad student, but I definitely slacked off. Like I was a class clown. I had a lot of teachers telling my parents, like this kid needs to clean his act up because he's just not getting the, the performances or scores that he's capable of. And, you know, at some point I kind of matured, I guess you could say, and got to a point where I was like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll do what's asked of me, but there's no, when you're in your teenage years, there's no real understanding of what is on the other side when you graduate college and you are now an adult, right? So you kind of entertain all these things that you're supposed to do and you continue down that track. And I just remember once I got to college and made it through my first year, I felt so unbelievably trapped in this STEM space, Um, like miserable, 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 miserable. I felt like I was living someone else's life for all four years of college in that regard, because I had no idea what I wanted to do because it was such a high pressure environment that you didn't really have to, like, if, if you didn't, if you didn't enjoy your schoolwork, like you didn't have time to think about what it was that you like, because you just have so much in front of you that needs to get done. So I just felt this suffocating kind of like trapped in a cage. I'm doing things that I don't want to do, but I'm going to continue doing them anyway because I don't have an alternative. And then, you know, I I picked up pre-med. Like I said, I eventually made the decision, oh, I'm going to go to medical school. Let me do a year of research at at the NIH. That's what I'm going to do. And 
each year of college, you know, you kind of find your identity, you start to self-characterize better and understand where your values lie and kind of the direction you want your life to go in, but it's still all a work in progress. And each year, those like voices in your head that tell you what you really want to do. And then the fear from the other voice telling you like, no, keep doing what you're doing. Like it was very persistent for me, the voice that was saying what I really wanted to do. Um, And it got to the point where, you know, I was studying for the MCAT, like I was doing really well on the practice exams. I was ready to take it. And I'm just remembering days in lab where I'm looking at my coworkers and I'm just like, you guys are just like a bunch of soy bugs. Like, you're just like, you're just like (laughs) such like, oh, like, I just don't even, you look so miserable. You sound so miserable. All you ever do is complain. And there were people in my lab who had been there for, you know, 10 years and they're talking about how shitty their salary is. And like, they're fucking fat and they look like slobs and just like, I'm like, this is, you know, even if I was going to go into medicine and not research, I'm like, this is just not the life that I want to live. And, you know, once I made the decision to come back to New York, I just felt like this weight was lifted. And I was like, holy shit, like I'm actually myself. Like it was, I'm, I'm actually pursuing something that I want to do, which I think is really the biggest, you know, source of self-confirmation. Like if you're doing something you don't want to do, like it, it really does make you feel like a, 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 a husk or a shell or like you're being directed or puppeted by someone else or something else. Um, so eventually converging to this point of, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make powerlifting a full-time thing. It, it took a really long time. It took, you know, multiple conversations with people who I considered like mentors in my life saying like, Oh yeah, you're going to do this full time. And I was like, no, the fuck I'm not. <laughs> and then a few years later, you know, look at how things turned out. Um, it's funny because I remember a lot of engineers who like, didn't want to go the engineering route. You know, some would go into finance, some would go into consulting. Someone mm-hmm. was like, why do you want to do consulting? And I remember one of the reasons was like, Oh, you know, I don't want to travel as much as like everyone tells me that they do. And like, now I, if it's busy meet year, I'm like somewhere every other weekend. Hmm. Like I've gotten to the point where I'm so comfortable flying. I'll be asleep before the plane even takes off. Yeah. It's just like, you really don't know where things are going to take you in. And it's, it was, uh, it was, it was a long, like very stressful path. But at this point it's like, I, I literally couldn't ask to be doing anything else. You know, I really feel like for a lot of people, for me, for you, I'll I'll kind of put it there at least, you can do anything, really, you know what I mean, it it comes down to uh, getting out of your own way, you know, I I remember having that realization, like, you know what, like, when I put effort into something, there's practically nothing I can't do, you know, it's much more of a, sometimes I'm lazy, sometimes I don't want to do something, but I'm literally getting in my own way. If mm-hmm. I can actually visualize what it is that I want to create and I really put some effort and energy into that thing, there's nothing that can actually seem to stop that. Mm-hmm. I mean, to a limit. I certainly haven't found it in my life. When I want something and when I'm willing to actually really drive towards it, it's kind of, it, it, it happens, you know? The the question usually just comes down to like, can I really be honest with myself about, you know, where I'm being lazy and where I'm not really 
paying attention and where I'm kind of coming up short. And if I can make those behavioral changes and put more action into those things, I really think that like this can become a reality. Mm-hmm. But I, I see so many people that talk themselves down from their potential that it, it to me, it's, it's like they don't even they can't even glimpse what it is that they could do because they never mm-hmm. tried. And I, I don't know if it's because I think a lot of people are afraid to give it a real shot and fail. And then you actually have to like blame, you, you realize like, oh, it was me. I fucked up. Like I yeah. couldn't pull off what I wanted to pull off. But, you know, it, it's like, I don't know, man, you only get this one shot, you know, yeah. not to sound like Eminem or something like that. <laughs> but, you know, what do you, what, what do people want to do? Like, what do you want to do? You You're going to be here anyways. You know what I mean? That's a guarantee, like kind of guaranteed. You're going to be here. Like time's going to go by. A year from now, it's going to be a year from now. What did you do between now and then? Did you do anything? Did you just get, you know, were you pissed and blaming everybody else for your problems? Or did you actually try to focus on something and make it work? And so, you know, I, I just see, I see you as someone that really could do anything with this it's just a question of how big is your vision and how much of yourself are you willing to put into it and i don't see anything that's ever going to stop you from being able to create and dominate in a way that is really just incredible to watch thank you man that that means a lot thank you well i would love to close it there and uh you know i hope are you gonna have dinner right now i know i'm gonna Make uh, I'll probably eat something. I ate something a couple hours ago that was like pretty big. I literally just like took an entire box of pasta and like steak and eggs and just made this pile of slop. So I'll oh, eat something. Pile of slop. That sounds delightful. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, man, it's really been a pleasure. I would love to do this again. We'll stay in touch. Yeah, and, man. Um, yeah, this was amazing. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it.